All right, uh, before we get started here, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and say a prayer uh, for everyone in the path of Hurricane Irma that I think is making landfall today. Uh, so yeah, go ahead and bow your heads. Uh, dear God, uh, I just pray uh, for, for safety, God. Uh, God, I, I just pray for comfort, uh, Lord, for, for all the people that have already been hit by this hurricane, God, in the Caribbean. Uh, Lord, and, like an entire islands have been destroyed. God, I just pray that, that you can really work to comfort those in need. Uh, God, that aid can be swift. Uh, God, that, that, uh, that the, the government authorities and everyone can really work uh, to the benefit of the victims. God, but I just pray for everyone still in the path of the hurricane, God, that they can be protected. Uh, Lord, that, uh, that, that you can uh, move the hurricane uh, you know, uh, let it, let it, let, let it die out. Whatever needs to happen, God, just protects people. But God, I just pray that uh, people are just led, led to you, uh, uh, God. You know, in their suffering, God, that they can, they can turn to you, uh, God, the greatest comforter of all, Lord. Uh, thank you so much uh, for everything you've given us, God. I just pray uh, for this message, God, that uh, all our hearts can be soft, Lord. Uh, that that we can all be just humbled by your word, Lord. Uh, and thank you so much for everything you've given us in Jesus. I pray, Amen. 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 My name is Stephen Wetzel. I am a campus intern here at James Madison University. Dukes. Yeah, that's not booing for those who aren't familiar. That's actually Dukes. Yeah, uh, the mascot. The, the first time I heard that, I was like, why is everyone booing? Like, gosh, like awful people. Uh, but yeah, I lead the ministry here with my girlfriend, Amy Rosenquist, right there, uh, doing the communion song and everything. That was awesome. Uh, but yeah, let's dive right into this. Uh, so... I have a, a bit of a theory, uh, yes, about literature, uh, about books, anything, anything with a story, really. Uh, but let's just like take movies as an example. I think that's probably like the most accessible uh, we can make it. And maybe this isn't so much a theory as an idea I kind of like to explore. And the, the idea is that sometimes in a movie, the person that we're led to believe is the main character isn't the main character at all. You know, the, the person, uh, you know, we follow or kind of see the, the, the story through the lens of their perspective isn't actually the most important character sometimes. And sometimes the movie isn't really even about them. It's about someone else, someone unexpected. And I think if you take the time to look at what's happening through this other kind of shadow character's perspective, the whole meaning of the narrative can change. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm really sorry, but, but the, the, one of the examples I, I, I feel like I, I'm obligated to use is from Lord of the Rings. And I'll try to make this as accessible to you guys who, who aren't as familiar with the story. But if you're not familiar with this, you need to repent. You need to go home, watch all the movies, read all the books, whatever you need to do, because it's mad spiritual. All right. And it's just, it's just epic and fantastic. Uh, it, it, it's just amazing work. But anyway, the main character is this, this, this small person, this hobbit named Frodo. That's the main character. That we're led to believe. All right? and, and, you know, if you go through the story through kind of the lens of his perspective, it's this story of perseverance, of friendship, of, of fate even, and how, you know, small things can change the course of the world. How small people can uh, defeat in, in, in evil beings, you know, dark empires. But if you shift your, your focus to a different character... Someone less obvious, some, someone like, if you're familiar with this, this character, Gollum, okay. who's kind of this like small and kind of like gross, fallen character who like talks really weird and yeah. no one likes uh, and it's hard to relate to. But if you, if you look through the story through his lens, 
it becomes a lot longer of an arc. And it becomes this story about the tragedy of pain, about the seduction of evil, and, and the goodness that can exist in all of us, even after enduring so much and being so evil for so long. And how good things can come even through evil deeds, even through when people succumb to evil. Changes the entire perspective on the story. That's, that's a good idea. Maybe something more accessible like Harry Potter, all right? Harry Potter, obviously the main character is Harry Potter, right? It's right there in the title. Obvious, it's like all the books just focus on him. Uh, you know, if you look at it through the lens of Harry, it's this story of uh, finding oneself, again, a friendship, uh, a little bit of fate, uh, of going against all odds. Uh, but if, if you look at the, the story through the character of Snape, who's actually kind of the, an, the antagonist for a lot of the books, it suddenly becomes this story where Harry doesn't even, like the main character actually looks awful. And it, it, he, he's just kind of annoying and doesn't get things and, and just has like the wrong ideas about everything. Yeah. And it becomes a story about the tragedy of love, of self-sacrifice, the endurance of long-suffering pain to give somebody that you don't even like just one chance to do ultimate good. Wow. To avenge... Uh, yourself on the one on the man who took everything away from you uh, hopefully that didn't give away everything but again if you haven't seen these movies go back watch them super important really sorry but it changes how how we view everything that's happened uh and i love this because sometimes when we do this the story becomes even more meaningful and even more impacting when the focus is on the right person go ahead and turn over to luke 20 we, we find the story here. This is the title of my lesson, by the way. The choice is yours. We're going to go through Luke 20 here. We find ourselves at a bit of a climax in the gospel. Uh, Jesus has taken his ministry into Jerusalem. Uh, he, he's, he's gone through the triumphal entry. You know, the, this huge procession, this prophetic procession. Uh, where you know, he's, he's welcomed by huge crowds into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he, he clears it of all the vendors and you know, people who are making his father's house a den of robbers. And all this does is kind of riles up and ruffles the feathers of the religious authorities and, and gets them a little angry. And so they're looking for a way to kill him because he's coming to their house and shaking things up. And they don't like that at all. And so... Jesus is too popular to just like take him and kill him. And so they try to find ways to trap him. Right. In, 20, in chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible reads, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this, this authority to enter here like a king? Who gave you this authority to come and just clear the temple like it's yours? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Jesus turns it around on them, reveals their cowardice, really. And so they answered, we don't know where it was from. They kind of give the cop-out answer. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
He says, guess what? I'm, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. But I'm going to tell you a story instead. Come on. Come on. Verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. This is an absolutely incredible parable. I don't like even have time to, to kind of go through all the things that, that Jesus does here and unpack everything. But we, we start out here with this man who owns a vineyard. All right. Here's a picture of a modern day vineyard. Uh, this man like clearly owns the vineyard. Like he owns the land, he plants it, and then he like rents it out. Like everything about this is his. And he has this idea, okay, I'm gonna, I've got this land. I don't, I'm not going to work it myself. I'm going to rent it out to others who will work the land and I'll get a cut. You know, I'll, I'll get a certain percentage of, of what they produce. Pretty good plan, right? Unfortunately, for the owner, these farmers aren't your normal farmers. They're like incredibly stupid, like incredibly foolish. Uh, and even like, it, it's like a basic, like evil kind of way. Uh, that's just like, it's just kind of stooge-like and how like dumb and foolish and evil they are. It, 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 there's not a lot of education back then, but it doesn't like take a high school diploma or like a degree from JMU to know that like what they're doing makes absolutely no sense. Right. <laughs> it's not an uncommon situation either. Like estates like this were usually rented out by the owners, but when the owner sends a servant to go and collect his rightful share of the fruit, instead of like doing the normal thing where it's like, okay, like this is his land. We'll just give you a cut and keep the rest for ourselves. It's kind of like a win-win situation here. Instead of doing like what makes sense and what's right and give him what's rightfully his, they beat the messenger and send him away with nothing. And like not only once, but like three times. Yeah. All right. In like escalating fashion. And so they, they beat the first guy. They beat the second and treat him shamefully, like whatever that means. Uh, and they wound the third and then throw him out. And then it, it, it gets even worse and even more foolish. And the owner sends his son and they have this brilliant idea of like, all right, let's kill him. And the inheritance is going to be ours. And that makes like zero sense. They're, they're probably thinking about like squatting laws at the time would say like, okay, if I hold the land for three years consecutively, it's, it's yours. But even so, they're talking about like killing this man's son and thinking that like nothing is going to happen. Like, there's going to be no consequences. And it just, like, makes no sense. Like, it's like saying, oh, if I, if I kill the president, then I get his job. That's not how this works. That's, like, not how anything works. All right? You don't just, like, replace the person that you kill. Just, if you thought that way, stop. Uh, go, go, go home today. Rethink your life. Watch Lord of the Rings. Ch ch turn things around. Uh, you need help. 
And so the tenants kill the son, and lo and behold, what happens? The owner finally sends men to go and kill these criminals and these murderers and, and gives the vineyard to people who probably have more common sense, who aren't so, like, basely evil. And I, I think, you know, we read this and we just think it's ridiculous. And we're like, what even is this? But the people listening to this originally react, may this never be. They, like, react in horror because they know something kind of culturally and intuitively that, that we don't know because they, these are men who have memorized the entire Old Testament from the time they were boys. And what they understand is that Jesus is actually referencing a, parable, or a, uh, a story in Isaiah 5. And, and write that down and go, go ahead and look at it in your own time. But basically in Isaiah, the writer uses Israel as a metaphor yeah. or uses a vineyard as a metaphor for Israel. And so they understand that what Jesus is talking about is taking the inheritance of Israel away. And he's saying that what's in danger here is not a vineyard. It's your standing with God. Wow. And so they hear this and get it and they think, may this never be. That something that some people so dumb and so foolish can ruin something so amazing that we have. May this never be. And it's amazing. Jesus looks directly at them and says in verse 17, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And again, these words have a lot more weight to the people hearing them at the same time. Because what Jesus is doing is he's actually referencing Psalm 118, which is a prophecy predicting the triumphal entry. And what he's just done, what's ruffled all these feathers, he's saying, look at that psalm. That's just what happened. <coughs> the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. It's me. And he's saying, you're saying, may this never be. You're already doing it. May this never be, but this is literally you right now. And it's crazy because he's saying, I am that son who is your last chance. And I think that's, that's crazy. But what's even scarier is that this is us. Because this isn't kind of recorded here just for posterity. This isn't just like in here as a nice story about how Jesus like stuck it to the religious authorities. This is here as a warning. For us to heed. <laughs> and I think we, we can fall into this very trap and just be blinded as the Pharisees were. And not get it. That this is us. This is a warning for us. Because what was the biggest mistake of the tenants? Their, their biggest sin was that they thought they could own the vineyard for themselves. They thought that in this situation, they could have it for themselves. They had this like audacious authority, this like bold and brash uh, claim to authority that like made no sense. And they asserted their own authority over the owner when all he wanted, what was already rightfully his. And I know we see it as foolish here, but this is our primal temptation. We want to run our own lives. I think to back before I, I became a disciple, and this is, this is still a temptation. I, I think like any, any part of your spiritual walk, this is the temptation. 
is to be our own authority. But what kept me so long from being a disciple and actually following God was I didn't want to give up my own authority. Like I didn't want uh, to lose control. I was just so scared of losing control over my life and my life decision, my life's decisions. And honestly, that still scares me. Four years down the line, you know, the thought of not going places I want to go, not doing things I want to do, you know, having, having to like give up sin that's in my heart. I, I didn't want to side with the Bible when what I, what I wanted to do contradicted with what the Bible said that I should do. I didn't, I didn't want to share my faith and be uncomfortable with people and like start conversations about Jesus, you know, trying to, trying to help them and see, okay, like who, who, who needs Jesus? I didn't want to confess my sin and like tell people what was actually going on in my life. Uh, I didn't want to show people the real me, you know, the, the sin that was hidden, the evil thoughts, the impurity that was behind closed doors, just the arrogance I had, uh, the way that I just like looked down on people uh, because I, I thought I knew how it stacked up with Stephen on top and everyone at the bottom. Just these disgusting thoughts that I had. I didn't want to tell anyone that. I wanted to hold on to that. You know, when we, when we choose not to give God what he's asking for, we're just sending the messengers away empty-handed. Wow. And we might think that we're loving Jesus. You know, we might go to church and we might go to worship nights and, you know, go to Bible talk or, or go to large group, small group, whatever, sing the songs and pray, but we can take all the authority away from Jesus. I think sometimes we worship this fake Jesus, you know, who kind of looks like him and has all the feel good aspects of him, but is missing the crown. And we just take this like fake Jesus out of the closet and we say, look, I'm tight with Jesus, but it's not Jesus at all. Stripped of his authority. Are we worshiping a false Jesus? You know, like one that looks like him, but has all his authority, all his teeth, all his royal pomp and circumstance taken away from him. Uh, we worship this fake Jesus while we kill the one with the real authority outside the vineyard. And I, I think it's tempting. It's probably tempting to be sitting there and thinking, you know, this isn't me. And I think like reading this, I wanted to think like, this isn't me. Like, I'm not these foolish people. But I think we have to look carefully at ourselves and get uncomfortable with the way that we look at ourselves. And I don't like doing this, but if we don't, we're going to fall into this trap. This is the primal temptation of humanity right. is to not give God the authority he deserves. Yeah. I think the question has to be asked, what aren't you giving to God? Mm-hmm. Question. Good question. What area of your life are you holding from God? And I think a good way to think about it is what is it that if you had to give up or had to do would make you the most uncomfortable might even make you say no to God. Mm-hmm. What if God came into your life and asked for that one thing? Would you say no? Is it that God wants you to share your faith? Or be open about your life? Be vulnerable with people? Show them the real you? Confess things that you've never confessed before? Is it the call to give up your sin? Is it, you know, sexual impurity, the the partying, just selfishness, or even just like bitterness and hate and judgment that you have for people inside of you that you don't want to give up? Is it this relationship that you're holding on to that you know isn't glorifying God, that you know is impure? That you know God would want you to give up if you were real about it. Is it the idol of school? And that was huge for me. was just like wanting to get all my uh, worth out of school. And I pursued that to the detriment of my relationship with God. I would come to church. 
Uh, and even sometimes I would just kind of stay in, in another area while my parents were in church and just do homework as people were worshiping. Is it your family and what they think and what they believe? Are you willing to give that up for the truth that's in the Bible? And, and for me, it was such a struggle to give up with God or at least to give everything that he wanted in total. Because I think I was, I was like okay with being the good kid on the outside. And I was like the good kid on the outside. Like I got great grades and like didn't go to parties and like didn't do drugs or, uh, or I wasn't like, you know, lying to my parents necessarily, but I was a lot less okay with making my whole life line up with the Bible, telling people about the hidden sin, the hidden impurity about the evil thoughts that I had about sharing my faith and making a stand for Christ. I was like putting up this front of being the good tenant and kind of giving lip service to this fake Jesus that I had. While all the while I was hoarding so much more. And honestly, the more important things, I was withholding my heart from God. But if we're not willing to give these things to God, we're just like these tenants. We are our own authority deciding what is ours and what is God, God's. And this foolishness that we see here is our foolishness we're not willing to give god our lives which like are clearly his because like i i think i like to think man i've earned this like i've earned these good grades like i've earned this stuff you know i studied hard but i didn't put i didn't breathe life into my lungs no no one here can like take credit for their existence right and i think like at at a very basic level like just from like the standpoint of like biological functioning like nothing we have is ours the talents that we have, and even just back to like, can I function by myself? No. God had to give us life Amen. in the beginning. It's like clearly his. Yeah. These lives we're living. And that's a scary thought to put ourselves in the shoes of the tenants because what happens to them at the end is awful. And it's scary, you know, to think like, okay, this is a warning about what will happen. But if we see this as just a warning... As just this kind of like shape up or die kind of message. We're actually missing the real point of this parable. Because that's, that's not the most encouraging message in the world. Not, it's not necessarily like false. But that's not actually what Jesus is talking about here. And let's remember what I was saying earlier about how shifting the perspective of a narrative can change the entire way that we, we look at it. Let's, let's rewind here for a second. Because uh, I think it's tempting to think that the main characters in this story are the tenants. Because everything kind of happens to them, you know? They're the ones that kind of get judged at the end. And I think for some of us, the main point of Christianity is judgment. That's how we're tempted to think about it. It's just like, what can I do to escape judgment? And that can lead to one of two things where it's like, let me work my way to being perfect. Then I won't get judged. Or it's like, oh, like I have grace. There is no judgment. I can just do what I want. And neither of those perspectives are good. Neither of those perspectives is what God is trying to get us to understand here. And judgment's important, but it's not the main point of Christianity. And I think we respond to the audience here because we focus on that last piece of the narrative. Uh, And naturally, how we think as Westerners in the the 21st century is that uh, the climax and the main point of a story comes at the end. And so that's kind of what we look for, and that's how movies work generally. All right, the climax, what's important, the main point is all going to be revealed at the end. That's not how Jewish literature works. Okay. Right. But here, we kind of have a basic outline of the story. 
The vineyard's rented, given off to these tenants. There's violence committed by the tenants. There's this decision to send the son. There's violence again on the part of the uh, tenants and then, you know, towards the tenants. And then again, it's rented. And this is where we kind of think the climax is. This is where we think the point is. Because that's what we're led to believe. But this isn't actually how Jewish literature works. Jewish literature isn't linear. It's circular. It's symmetrical. Which that means if you ever want to find the point of a story in the Bible, it usually comes right here. In the center. Fancy, right? We have this symmetrical structure. This is the climax. This is the main point. Let's rewind here. And see... Because the, the tenants aren't involved with this at all. Right. The only person that's involved here is the owner. Right. That's the main character. That's the perspective we need to be looking at. On, Let's rewind here in verse 9 and reread and see how this changes things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? This is the real crisis of the story. What shall I do? do because right here the logical answer to this question is to go and destroy those tenants that would have been the logical answer to that question a long time ago but especially at this moment the the, what I, i think everyone else would do is to go without a question or a concern for these criminals lives and clear them out there with force and take what's rightfully yours with violence if necessary because in this culture the owner's Honor has been violated. They've taken his representatives and beat them. His honor's in, come into question. The logical thing for anyone listening to this story is to go and destroy those guys. Regain your honor. Do what's just. Do what's righteous in their eyes. Mm-hmm. It demands a response. <clears throat> but the answer to this question, what shall I do, is very different from, I think, what we would do. What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. That's foolish. That's like dumb. That's that's crazier than anything that's actually happened in this story. Because these are all the men that have just insulted the owner and beaten all of his messengers one after the other And now he wants to go and send the thing that's probably most precious to him into this situation, unarmed and defenseless, with the same message. That's foolish. And we have to ask, why? Why would he do that? And I think the owner wanted so badly... For the tenants to change their hearts. Mm-hmm. Yep. He wanted so badly for them to wake up. The only way 
Because of their foolishness, the only way he knew how to do it was to match their foolishness with vulnerability. In the hopes that this supreme act of vulnerability would finally wake them up and make them think, oh my gosh, what are we doing? These other messengers, fine, like they're they're just kind of, you know, uh, peasants, you know, whatever. This is the man's son. We can't do this to him. What are we doing? And it's almost like the owner is rooting for them. It's almost like he, he just wants to find like any way that he can to get them to see that what they're doing is wrong, that it's foolish, that he wants them to come to their senses, that he cares about them even through all of that. This is Jesus's point. It, 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 it's not this shape up or you'll die message. You know, this like check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of message. Jesus's point here is that we have a God who loves us so much that despite how incredibly foolish we're being and withholding from him, despite how ridiculous our sin is, despite how we won't give him our time and our energy and how we continually reject him and send his messengers away empty handed, knowing full well what he wants from us. Despite how all we deserve at this point is judgment, he sent his son to ask us again. Amen. He sent his son again, unarmed and defenseless, for us to do with as we please. And he did it knowing that most likely we would kill him. And hoping, hoping that at some point along that path, we would see our foolishness come to our senses and understand what we've wrought or made with our sin. And then at that point, we would turn back and actually repent at the price of that son. This is the ultimate act of love. This is our last chance. And it's, it's not like our last chance in terms of like, Oh man, like you've used up all your chances, like now there's judgment, so ha ha. It's, there's nothing more that can be done for us. There's nothing more that can be done to catch our attention. The ultimate act of the love in, ultimate act of love in the universe has happened. And if that doesn't change us and catch our attention, nothing will. It's our last chance in that if this doesn't work, we are hopeless. We've made our decision of whether or not we want to finally change our hearts. There's nothing more that you can do, that, that, that God can do. If you're waiting for a sign, this is it. It came and went 2,000 years ago. All you have to do is notice it and do something about it. And the question is, what are you going to do? You have a choice. The sun is at our doorstep. And do you listen? Do you finally try and give your whole life to him? Do you finally study the Bible and ask somebody what Jesus wants from you? Do you finally confess to someone what's really going on in your life? Do you finally repent of that sin that's plagued you for so long that you've been holding on to that you don't actually think you can give up, that there's nothing else that can fill that void in your life other than the sin? Do you finally give that one thing to God, that idol, Do you finally give up that relationship or pursue God above what your family thinks? Or do we murder the messenger and reject the last and best chance that we'll ever have? Do we forego our only hope? 
that's the choice that we're faced with right now. That's when we read this parable. That's the choice we're forced to make. But I think in, in the face of such profound love and vulnerability, honestly, the choice is clear. Through that sacrifice, Jesus has paved the way. All we have to do is get open and real. We have a God who, who cares for us so much that he's willing to match our ridiculousness with vulnerability. That he doesn't even care about his own safety, about his own life, about his own pain. He just wants us to turn back so, so badly. And he loves us so much and knows that there's so much more out there than our sin, than our self-sovereignty. He just, he knows that this is a far better way of living is to just give him what he wants because he knows that's what's going to fill us up anyway. That that's the only hope we have for filling the voids in our heart anyway. And he's pursued our well-being to the detriment of his own. And he wants us to have it so bad, he opened, us up to, he opened himself up to so much pain just so we would wake up. The choice is up to us now. This is it. This is the last warning we have. This is the last gift that we have, rather. The last act of love that we need. The only one that we need. Everything's at our doorstep right now, but we just have to choose how to respond. Oh, thank you guys so much. Uh, if if I, yes, thanks. <laughs> if you're a visitor out here today, please ask somebody who who brought you here to study the Bible with you and figure out what all this means. If you have any questions, but thank you guys, guys, so much. To God be the glory. Yeah.